Hey guys, welcome to Church and Other Drugs. My name's Jed, and you're the congregation, and that makes this a show. Kind of ripping that off of stuff they don't want you to know. I really like that dude's uh, that dude's intro. It's good. I need something catchy like that. Um, it is the hottest, or today or tomorrow has the potential to be the hottest day in history in southern Louisiana, where I am. So that's cool, right? 107, if it hits... If it hits 107, it'll tie. If it hits 108, it'll break the new record. Awesome. Good for us. Yay, team. Um, I'm Today's episode, super awesome. I brought back Dr. Matt Matthew Halstead. You may remember him uh, from the UFO episode. Uh, at the beginning, I, mean, I couldn't help it. I had to ask him what he, his thoughts on the UFO, UAP stuff uh, since... Because after the episode aired is when the uh, congressional hearings and the David Grush stuff all came out. So I had to see if uh, anything new he had thoughts on. Um, But why I had him on today was he has a new book uh, called It's the End of the World as You Know It. And it's all about revelation, uh, end times, all that good stuff. What does the Bible say about the apocalypse? All that good stuff. And I've had so many questions about Revelation, and I've had some people on before that haven't really given quite good answers, but Matt knows his stuff, and we had a pretty awesome conversation about like what what is going on with, with that book. 666, Nero, Roman Empire, destruction of the temple in 70 AD, what's going on? So, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, send me an email, churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com. Patreon.com slash church and other drugs and storefrontier.com slash church and other drugs. Um, there was totally this inflection point. So it started with me and my buddy, John, and then he got too busy. So he quit. And then I just kept going with it. And then it's, it's like anything else, any hobby or anything in the digital space is like, okay, you'll start ramping up and you're getting, uh, traction. But then if you don't, if you don't have like a social media manager, if you're not doing it, if you're not on every single social, if you're not doing Twitter, if you're not doing this, if you're not on YouTube, then you can only grow so much. And it was it like I tried that for a second and I was like pushing for more and more like celebrity guests and all that. And and then it was just like, I can't, I can't keep up. And, and yeah, yeah. It, it was just, yeah, it was too much. So I was just like, if I'm going to keep doing this, then it's just got to be basically, I still have to do it for myself otherwise. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's good because it, it feels more natural that way. And like you said, low stress, it's easy. Yeah, I, I've, uh, yeah, I'm new to the podcasting stuff. I, I have a podcast, but it's, I'm only like 29 episodes, 30 in. So, but um, yeah, yeah. And, and it's a what lot is, of work. What is yours called again for the it, people? The, 
the Bible unmuted. The Bible yeah. unmuted. And this yeah. is Dr. Matt Halstead back again. The uh pretty it's ironic that we did the UFO episode what like three weeks before the press conferences? A month maybe. Like, it, I can't remember when we did it. it. It's been a few months ago, but but yeah, since then a lot has happened and the mainstream media and of course you had the congressional hearings of the three witnesses or three people testifying i should say and uh yeah <laughs> it's pretty interesting to say the least it is so w- this episode will not be about that but <laughs> i just any any new uh any new thoughts or comments that you've had since all this stuff all the new stuff that came out yeah, that boy, that's a that's a long question. Yeah. <laughs> in in four words or less. Oh, four words. I don't no. know if I can do that. No, <laughs> I think kidding. um, yeah, no, it's interesting because I've written I've written a couple articles and I can't remember when we talked if I had written my first article on this, but I published uh, one article uh at the Logos website. Uh and so if people don't know it, Logos Bible Software, they they're owned by Faith Life and Faith Life is like the parent company to Lexum Press, which is the publisher. And they have a, a Bible software that's really popular called Logos Bible Software. Anyway, on their website, they run articles all the time. And so I uh, was working on an article and I was just pitching it around and and they they took it. They, they liked it and they wanted to publish it. And it was fun because I interacted with the new uh, law at, at the time it was new. It was last year's um, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act for uh, fiscal year 23. So it was passed last year, takes effect this year. Anyway, uh, yeah, the president signed it. And in the law, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, because it talks about how Congress wants to know about the Department of Defense's efforts at reverse engineering uh, unidentified anomalous phenomena craft, I guess. <laughs> it, you know, you're just left to speculate. So I had written on that. And what I mentioned in that article was, why in the world would they put such science fiction-y language in a law that, because to me, I mean, just a plain reading of it basically says that Congress not only thinks it's possible that that there are reverse engineering programs, but that it's plausible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't direct the Department of Defense to do something unless you have, you know, reason to do so. And, well, long story short, um, uh, this person named David Grush, who was uh, a really high ranking intelligence official who, I mean, this was, this was a guy who had so much, uh, had such a high clearance. I mean, he, he was, he, he was responsible for bringing the, and walking over personally, the president, part of the presidential daily briefings to the white house. I mean, this was a high ranking dude and there was long story short, he had come out, uh, with, some rather out of this world claims, I guess you could say. And ah. with Ross Coltart, who, who's an award-winning journalist down in Australia, as well as Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, they wrote a piece on him. And Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, they wrote the New York Times article in 2017 and a few others since then. Anyway, um, yeah, he came out saying some crazy things, basically that, you know, he had um inter- he had investigated and found out that there were these secret programs that were under the radar of congress and he was just bringing them out to talk about them what's fascinating though i mean it it, it did it, it doesn't seem to be 
just this man's story though, because what happened was, uh, and, and by the way, I spoke with Ross Coltar, the guy who broke this story. I no way. Him. Yeah. Yeah. It's on my YouTube channel. People can go watch it. Cause I wanted to talk to the the players, the people involved for my article that I was mm-hmm. I started writing a second article. And I wanted, I didn't want to get to like hearsay necessarily. I just wanted to hear what the people involved were saying. And long story short, um, people can go back and look at this, but when David Grush, before he made, went public, he first went to Congress and behind closed setting, went into a skiff, um, a secret compartmentalized uh, intelligence briefing room or whatever, and told Congress everything. And in fact, he submitted his own findings to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, uh, the uh, IGIC guy. And he did his own investigation. And his investigation, he interviewed people uh, besides Grush, you know, all sorts of different people. And he found that Grush's claims were both credible and urgent. That's a direct quote. He sent that to Congress. And uh, things have been in the works a lot behind the scenes. And so what we're learning now has been going on for the past couple of years. And Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, pretty much validated some of this stuff. So long story short, the reason Congress had passed that law that I was scratching my head about was because they had been talking to David Grush and others. They knew what to put in the law to find out certain things, apparently. Uh, I'm not saying any of this is true. I'm not saying I'm not vouching for David. I'm not saying he's right or correct or whatever. I'm just saying this is what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's and it's when smart people say really weird things yeah Yeah, that's what i just simply wish people would acknowledge that this is this is not alex jones this is not david ike this is not you know this is your government (laughs) like this is a this is you know maybe there's something here i have no idea what it is what's been fascinating to me either I don't care what the truth is. I mean, whether it's little green men or what David Grush calls just non-human intelligence or um, whether it's some black ops project, whatever. I really don't care. What's interesting to me is just what is this taking a back seat and watching how people are responding to it. Like whether it's government officials, the way they're responding, because the way some in the Pentagon are responding it's it's pretty flabbergasting. It's just like, what? That's your response? Uh, I was recently watching, um, I think it was uh, the uh, the uh, Nas- is it National Security uh, Advisor. Um, yeah, the National Security Advisor. Um, forget his name. Kirby? John Kirby or something? Anyway, he was asked, hey, what about David Grush's claims? Like, you know, there's that there's aliens, that you guys are keeping aliens. And his response was, you know, I don't have any information for you at this time. And my thought was, Dude, the the alien thing is so so crazy and weird. Surely you could just say, "Oh, that's stupid, guys." No, of yeah, ex- not. yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that, that that tells me there's a few options here. Is maybe they have a reason for um wanting this to continue to play out, whether it's true or not. You know, I don't know. That's that's what's been funny is just listening and watching and, and hearing it... all this stuff and and watching people respond. It's it's been interesting. Watching the uh, watching the Christian response has been interesting too, because like me and uh, Nate from Blurred Creatures were talking about this and how it is just split down the middle of mm. whatever this turns out to be. It's demons, yeah. or or <laughs> right, right, right. hey, these are not demons. This is a separate thing, but it doesn't affect your faith. And it's it's literally yeah. like it has split it straight down the middle. So that's been interesting to watch too. 
Mm-hmm. We it is such a crazy information age that we're living in right now. Like it it all it a summation of it is that there was a congressional hearing that said UAPs are a real thing and it was met with a whimper. Like that's if you told somebody that 10 years ago, you know, yeah, not, they wouldn't believe you, but that's where we are today. So it's like, okay, cool. Moving on. Well, you're, yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, um, I don't think it's a debate. It shouldn't be anymore that UAPs are a real thing because even uh, the national security advisor that I was talking about, he came out and said, yeah, this is a concern for us. And he was asked, is this a concern for president Biden? And he said, well, the president wouldn't, wouldn't have wanted legislation to be passed if he didn't think this was a concern and a real thing. And so I think we're past the idea that it's a real phenomenon. At least that's the narrative that's being given. Um, you know, I, I have no stake in it. Like, I don't, like I said, I don't care what it ends up being. My latest article at Premier Christianity, um, I go through this stuff and I talk about, hey, is this a threat to the Christian faith? And I go through the core Christian doctrines of incarnation and, you know, salvation and all that kind of stuff and, and our identity as humans. And I say, look, no, this is not a problem. Even if it's little green men, so what? I'm still going to go to church the next Sunday. I mean, I'm not going to lose right. my faith. And and I <laughs> right. not because I'm just tenacious or whatever. It's just simply because I don't see a logical contradiction. And now if it's just a psyop or if it's just a mass hysteria or people just going crazy and highly intelligent people in the government that that are on our payroll are going crazy. Look, either way, uh, this this definitely is newsworthy yeah, uh, yes. but i have no i have no stake in whatever the conclusion ends up being but like you said it is funny it's kind of like hey guys there's ufos and then everybody's like oh, all right well, what's for dinner <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> how about how about that laptop though it's just like okay Every, everybody yeah what, what this has shown is that um and I, I remember hearing a congressman say this too he was saying you know he's like man this is so crazy that there's kind of been an announcement that there are UFOs and people are like, just don't care. Like, I don't care. You know, that's, what's pretty funny about it, I guess, too. Wild. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. so will, this is my segue yeah. of all time. Will the aliens ush- usher in the end of days? <laughs> are we <laughs> living in the end times? The, that's a good question. Uh, all, all, in the sense that people are asking it, like, I don't, yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is how Christians, are saying that like you know a lot of scholars a lot of theologians aren't going to give questions like that a time of day and i think that's unfortunate because that's a question that people in the pew do wonder that's a question that people i mean i think legitimately fear and you know so there's all sorts of rumors now things like oh this is just a government psyop to cause uh the, to usher in the antichrist or to get yes. control of people that's a huge one this is the um, great great deception is another the great big deception one. yeah all that kind of stuff um to answer your question directly no i don't i don't think that's anything yeah any kind of, no and I, I, of course yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm not saying you were you were thinking that but i i do think i mean i the reasons i have for this is they're just actually pretty simple i you know i don't again i don't know if this is little green man or just really cool tech that the government's keeping secret or whatever but if it is little green men if it is something like that and we discover something like that i just see it as a scientific uh discovery i don't see it as a bad thing uh a nefarious thing at all even if okay here's the thing even if you discover intelligent life sentient 
highly intelligent life and they are really bad. Okay. Like independence, they bad or something that doesn't mean they're demonic. It just means that there's another creaturely thing out there that has done what we've done, namely just be really bad people. Right. And, and so, um, <laughs> it has, yeah. Even if yeah. an alien comes down and says, Hey, I'm your creator. I've created you guys. I would just look at it and say, you're stupid. No, you didn't. And it, it, we have, we have human beings who think they are God on, you know, they, there are people walking yes. around right now who think they're divine. And I just say, as creatures, you know, we are prone to all sorts of weird sin and evil. None of that has anything to do with my faith. My, my, uh, well, as one, uh, a couple of philosophers in an article I read recently, I think it's called Houston, Houston, do we have a problem? Something about exploring ET life. It's a peer reviewed journal article. Anyway, um, they were saying is like, look, our belief in God is established on independent grounds outside of these questions. You know, it has, so no matter what ends up happening with this, it has nothing to do with our belief in God. So, but back to your question, is this ushering in uh, some sort of apocalyptic or end time sort of thing scenario? And I see no evidence of that. Nowhere in the Bible does it mention this. There's nothing in the Bible about extraterrestrials. There's nothing in the Bible about extraterrestrials taking over the world or anything like that. Um, there are non-human intelligences in the Bible, you know, angels, mm -hmm. demons, things like mm -hmm. that. But that's a different sort of thing, in my opinion. But so no, to answer your question, no, I, I don't think I don't think that's the case at all. And and so the the actual reason for bringing you back this time is I saw you you have a book coming out on the end times, and so this has been a, a huge interest of mine. I, I was one of those people that killed time in church as a middle schooler by reading revelation that was the only thing that was exciting to me and so i'm just like oh my god oh my god um and I, like i've i've had I've, I've had people on the podcast too uh before uh that just turned out to not really explain much and so it's always like okay so what is going on here um so there is yeah we're really i would like to know your take on it and then we can get to um because there is apps everywhere uh i look currently there's so much language about that we are living in the end times and this mm -hmm. seems to be common thing for almost every generation though and so it's you know yeah. i the main thing i've always wanted a clear answer on is uh the purpose of the book of revelation was did it already come true in 70 AD or 72 AD? Um, is it the uh, I don't know if there's an exact word for it, but the already not yet uh, dual prophecy thing? Um, yep. mm -hmm. and why uh, left behind is wildly inaccurate <laughs> things about the rapture, <laughs> yeah. No, that those are great questions. Um, yeah, I think tackling the first question, the are we living in the end times? Um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of baggage when it comes to that phrase, the end times, because of books like Le Left Behind and just popular preaching the last 40 years and um, all that sort of thing. We have this idea that the phrase the end times refers to the final events. Okay. The, the, the coming of Christ, the final judgment the renewal of all things, whatever, you know, those final events. 
Um, and and so what I what I like to what and what I do in my book, I have a whole chapter called "Are We Living in the End Times." I I basically take that phrase, "the end times," and I say, "Why do we equate it with the final events?" Because whenever you read scripture, you know, and, and I just encourage people. I say, look, take your lenses off, your modern left behind lenses off, you know, just take them off your head, set them on the table, you can come back to them later, but just try to bracket off the best you can, your own assumptions coming to this text. And again, the big assumption is the end times refers to the final events. And as I walk people through the text of scripture, I I show that there are many passages where the phrase in times or something similar to that are used in the context of referring to the first century. Okay, so just for example, in Hebrews chapter one, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, um, in you know previous times in various ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so what that means is that the last days, according to the writer of, of Hebrews, refers to the days of when Jesus was revealed on the earth, and that was the first century. And he's calling that the end times. And I go through a number of passages um, in some of Paul's writings and and elsewhere in the New Testament. And I show, look, the end times doesn't have to refer to the, the final events. They can refer, it seems, to the, the first century. And what I try to show is, and you can unpack this if you want to, but just briefly, what I try to show is that the end times is not necessarily a season on the calendar. The end times is actually a person, Jesus. Jesus is the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega. And that's why when Jesus shows up on the earth, that is the signal of the end. Because early Jews believed that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah would usher in the end of the age. And early Christians kept that idea, you know, that the Messiah has come, the end has come. Now, what they didn't anticipate was that he would leave and be resurrected and there would be a gap between you know, his initial coming in the final judgment. They thought all that would happen at one time, but that's not the way it did happen. You know, we're still waiting for Jesus to come. He has not yet consummated the kingdom, but yet already, the already not yet, that is, the already is still here. So what early Christians believed, in my opinion, is that the end times is that period from the start of Jesus's ministry, his coming to when he comes again. And all of that time period you know, is the end time. So are we living in end times? Absolutely. And we have been for 2000 years. Is it the same thing as the millennial reign? Is that a separate thing? That's, that's another, and you'll forgive me if I'm, if, if, uh, if I'm scattering things out of context. Um, but that, that is another counter like debate. I have heard about things about revelations in the end times and the kingdom of heaven and all these, all this language about, um, uh, the the end of days, the end of the age. Uh, some people say that the millennial reign of Christ began at his ascension. And like, that is where we're currently in. And when that's over, that's when. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really all depends on who you ask. There's so many smart, intelligent theologians, faithful Christians on either side of that debate. But yeah, as you say, some people will, will believe that, you know, now is the millennial millennial reign or, the millennial reign or is for those who have passed and who are reigning with Christ in heaven and that kind of thing. Others will say hmm. the millennial reign isn't going to happen until part of the final events. Like that's part of, that's a future thing. 
Um, I, you know, interestingly enough, that question about the millennial reign only occupies just a few verses in Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses one to four. And so I don't, I, I don't really deal with it in my book because I think we've made such a big deal out of just a few verses. Now that's, that doesn't mean it's not important. I get that, but there were just other pressing things that I wanted to address. But <laughs> totally. what my opinion is, is I'm not willing to bet one way or the other. I probably lean toward what they call the all millennial view that, you know, somehow, you know, the reign of Christ is going on now. Right. I, I think there's something beautiful about that. Um, it seems like when Jesus came, he, inaug- he, he brought the kingdom, he inaugurated the kingdom. He, he began healing people and empowering the church to do the same. So there's something beautiful about that idea. At the same time, there's a, the other view, what they call historic premillennialism. Premillennialism is the idea, like I described earlier, is that the, you know, um, the millennial is going to hold off for a while and it's going to be probably a literal thousand years when Jesus returns. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have a firm answer on that. I, I wish I did, but you know, it depends on the day. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So regarding revelation, talk about, um, is it describing future events or is it describing an event that occurred? namely the destruction of the temple in 70 or 72 70 yeah um yeah so that's a great question too a lot of people really get let, let me just answer your question straight up for and then I'll try to explain it yeah uh, the the answer is both i think that revelation talks about things that were relevant to the first century and i think it also speaks about things that won't happen until the final events. Okay. So the second coming is one of those things. I think revelation talks about the second coming of Christ and that hasn't happened yet. Um, what it, where people go wrong with revelation is that, you know, revelation calls itself a prophecy. Okay. And a prophecy, uh, in modern understanding is future telling, right? That's what we typically think of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And, in Revelation, because it calls itself a prophecy, that means, ah, it's all about the future. Um, well, there are a couple problems with that. Number one is, even if it is all about the future, that doesn't mean it's about our future. What if it's just about the first century's future, right? You know, so that's an issue. The second thing, and more importantly, is that in the Hebrew idea, prophecy was not about necessarily predicting the future. I mean, I can show you passages in the Bible where a prophecy is made and yet it doesn't really have anything to do with the the future per se, right? Um, where the prophet's not technically predicting the future. And so uh, I think few, I think prophecy is best understood as like uh, kind of like a, an authoritative word from God that demands obedience in some sort. And, and that has some, su- some sort of supernatural insight to it. You know, um, I think that's more like prophecy and that can include the future, but I don't think it's necessarily all about the future okay does that answer your question yeah 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 do do we um and probably important to it do we have an idea of when revelation was written and like what was the context of revelation being written yeah great idea so a great great question um and there's debate about that the majority view i think is that revelation was written around AD 95 so just five years shy of the second century um, another popular, but not as popular view is that revelation was written during the reign of Nero sometime in the sixties. 
Um, and depending on how you read it will depend, will de- is, is determined by a host of things and, and it de- determines a host of other things as well. Um, the, the thing, I, I believe it was written around 8095 or so. Um, but, but to your other question, you know, did it have, did, was a question, does it have relevance to the people around? Well, the context, the, the, context, the, yeah. the purpose and the context of it being, all I know, uh, is that John of, pa- John of Patmos was on this Island, had a vision, wrote it down. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and this is another important thing that people miss. Revelations, Revelation is technically not a book, right? It's a letter to mm. seven churches. Okay. So when we think of a book, we think of like oh, a theology book or something. Well, John was not writing a theology book in the sense that we think he was writing a letter. Uh, so I think we should read it as a letter. Now, if it's a letter, that means you've got to know a thing or two about who wrote it and who it's being read by, who it's going to. And as it turns out, Revelation tells us who it was uh, given to. It was given to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So like churches like Ephesus and um, Laodicea and Thyatira Smyrna and Pergamum and so forth. And um, it spells it all out. And I think that's a really important piece because um, I do think that the stuff going on in the first century in that area of the world was very important and there was some really crazy things happening um by the way asia minor is modern day western turkey that area okay ephesus kind of was on the coast okay and uh and all the cities were pretty close to each other and um, talk about a spiritual geographic location of that just that it's been in conflict since forever you know it's it's always interesting those those religiously important areas that there's something oh. to to that yeah ephesus especially was was an uh, it was a very very important city in the ancient world it was like the fourth largest city in the roman empire um it was home to all sorts of pagan cults the artemis cult would be the most important one is is it still did it evolve into a modern city or is it was it raised and it's just there's nothing on those grounds anymore yeah it's uh, yeah i've never been over there actually but there's there's ruins i mean you can you can look at them and uh and yeah i mean people walk among ancient ephesus all the time and there's ruins it's it's pretty cool looking hope to go one day but um yeah the geography's actually changed because the water used to be right next close to the water but the water's kind of receded back quite a bit and um but yeah so yeah these cities i mean a lot of them you can a lot of them in that area you can you can uh, go and there's all sorts of archaeological interest of for obvious reasons but in the, in the ancient world you know one thing that was going on there was something called the imperial cult and the imperial cult was exactly what it sounds like it was the worship of caesar and caesar uh, had his temples they built temples to caesar and these temples had priests these temples uh, were just very lively and active you know temples or you know kind of like a modern day church i guess you could say and they would worship the caesars and um and caesar's family and whatnot this is called the imperial cult and um, we know that ephesus had um uh, what they called a provincial temple pergamum did too smyrna and there were tons of these altars everywhere anyway but there were there were like province sponsored temples that were built that you had to get permission from rome to do and anything anyway 
they these cities would often compete with one another to get an, a provincial temple for the worship of Caesar. And um, it was kind of like competing for the Olympics. Like, you, you know, one city would compete with the other because they wanted that temple. Because if you had a temple to Caesar, you know, you would probably be in Caesar's good graces and that's good and, for business. Economy boost. Yeah. An economy boost. And it was also good for Caesar because it's, you know, boosts patriotism and that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, lots to be said about that, but just, but, but you do have, I think the Imperial cult does factor into the, the message of revelation. The reason I say that is because it seems like John is critiquing the Roman Imperial system in Revelation. So, for example, he has this monster, right? Uh, he has two beasts, two monsters, and they're empowered by a dragon who is clearly like the arch enemy of God, the, the Satan, right? And um, the beast, very interesting. Um, he's depicted in rather interesting ways, uh, one of which is that he has uh, seven heads. Mm-hmm. And um, and the seven heads of the beast are interpreted as seven mountains and seven kings. Okay. And I think anybody living in the ancient world would know that this is a reference to Rome. Rome was known as the city of seven hills. There was a yearly festival called uh, the Didn't Feast know of... that. Yeah. Yeah. It was known as the city of seven hills. We have, um, we have ancient uh, texts that speak of this and um, the city of seven hills uh it was just sort of like that was what rome is known by i I use the example of new york city as the big apple Mm -hmm. if i say the big apple people know what that refers to um there was a feast every year uh called uh septimontium or the the feast of the seven mountains and it was just to celebrate kind of like a kind of a thanksgiving i guess i don't know sort of big feasting sort of thing and that was celebrated every year and so it, the beast here is clearly a reference to Rome in some sense. I, I think that's clear. Interestingly, those seven heads are not just seven mountains, but they're also seven kings. That's how they're interpreted, which would make sense because Rome was the capital where the emperors lived. So it would make sense to associate Rome with not only the seven mountains, but seven kings who would have lived there, right? Um, and so basically what John is saying is that the beast is empowered by something grotesque, namely Satan. And this would have been, you know, a this would this would have been a critique of the Roman imperial system because the Roman imperial system said, hey, Caesar has brought peace to the world. Caesar has brought um, you know, uh, economic abundance and all those sorts of things. And what John is saying is like, no, he's he's a monster and he's empowered by a, a dragon. And even though it doesn't look like that, like that's clearly what um uh, what Rome is and who, um, real yeah. quick. And this sure, is just a straight answer. So who was emperor in 70 and who was emperor in 95, the two choices so, of writing. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the sixties. So that this would have been Nero at the okay. time. Uh, in the nineties, it would have been Domitian. Okay. And, and this actually is a good segue. It's a great appropriate question because it's kind of segues into what I was just about to say is what's fascinating. Two things is that, Domitian and Nero were often associated with one another. Nero was, of course, a very uh, licentious, evil, wicked sort of person. I mean, he had no sense of more moral compass, right? I mean, he killed his mother. He uh, engaged in all sorts of sexual perversion and all, I mean, all sorts of murderous plots. And it just, 
he was full of himself. He bankrupted the, the, the empire basically. And at the end, he was actually declared an enemy of the state. And when the Senate declared him an enemy, he ran off and, and went off and killed himself. And, um, I didn't yeah. know that. I never, I never knew what happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he killed himself and, and he, he, bl- he blamed the fire on the Jews or the Christians. Is that, yeah, oh, that right? A, that was part of his, uh, excessive craziness. Yeah. He was quite crazy. I mean, he, uh, yeah, that when Rome burned, he blamed the Christians. He killed Christians, lit them up as candles. Yeah, on the, the Roman Christmas candles. Garden. Yeah, and and it was so bad that even the pagans, you know, you can kind of tell this in one of the one of the writings from the time. Even the pagans were like, "Man, <laughs> you need to calm the, down." The, yeah, you're going too far, dude. And nobody liked Nero at all. Um, very few people did. He was just crazy. Well, when Nero died, he didn't have an heir. And so the the whole empire went into civil war mode and you had one general saying, I'm the next emperor. And he had like three of these guys. And this was the year of the four emperors because you had all these emperors back to back killing each other, you know, whatever. And um, well, anyway, so after these three emperors, um, another one comes up and his name is Vespasian. And Vespasian was a general. He comes back and he he stabilizes the empire quite a bit. And uh, after Vespasian dies, his son Titus, who is another general, takes over and he's the emperor. And Titus's brother, Domitian, becomes the next emperor after Titus dies. And Domitian is the emperor who is around when John is pinning this letter. Domitian was just as demented because he and he was he was often associated with Nero. He was often kind of like a considered a Nero part two. And mm. people didn't like that, of course. And, and Domitian was crazy. So just a couple of examples. We know that, um, according to one ancient historian, Suetonius, he mentions how how, how narcissistic um, the mission was because he he demanded to be called Lord and God. So if you came up to and, and addressed him, you would have to say, "My Lord and my God," you know. And um, he was just really conceited. There's another story where he it just shows how th- this story just shows the the unrestrained combination of evil and power that he enjoyed he basically well, there was one evening he invited one of the palace servants in to his private quarters and um uh wined him and dined him and just gave him a good time in this this poor palace steward's probably thinking man dude i'm like a special guest in the white house hanging out with the president you know mm-hmm. it's super cool and then the next the next day Domitian had him crucified had him killed and i mean why well, just because he could, it was kind of a fun thing, you know, you know, get this kid's hopes up and then go kill him later. It just showed the wickedness of Domitian. This is this was Domitian and nobody really liked him either. And and Suetonius says in his letter, he says, you know, he was everywhere hated and feared. That was a direct quote because he was just crazy. And so uh, <laughs> the, the the Roman Empire uh, uh, essentially erased him erased his, after he died. He erased his uh, memory, you know, that kind of thing. They didn't like him. And um so anyway, but here's here's why I'm bringing these two guys up. Um, there were rumors at the time that after Nero died, there were rumors that maybe Nero actually didn't die. You know, maybe he just fled. And he and there were fears that he would come back. And there were um, there were actually imposters, people coming claiming to be Nero, and uh, you know, and that really heightened the fear of people. Oh my gosh, Nero's coming back. He's gonna like destroy us all. And um, so there were these fears. Well, when Domitian is emperor you know he's sort of considered kind of a, a nero replay kind of thing you know they, mm. they didn't think he was actually nero but they thought 
This is the, like man, the spirit this of Nero. Yeah. yeah, something crazy. Well, so why is this important? Well, here, here's what's interesting. Um, there's an article um, by a scholar uh, named Mark Wilson in one of his one of his articles, um, and he talks about he he looks at some ancient material and he he puts it all in like one spot, which makes it really convenient. But he talks about how in the ancient world Nero uh, was uh, considered um, a beast, like the that uh, I'm mean, talking about texts outside of the Bible referring to Nero as a beast, and and at times Domitian is linked in with that uh, as well. Now, what's interesting about this is that you also have a text in Revelation calling some sort of Roman figure a beast, right? And so, so there is some, some similarities here. And what I do in my book is I show, hey, here's one out of several reasons why mm-hmm. I think we should consider Nero and maybe Domitian as the beast of Revelation. Um, now, it doesn't mean that the beast is Nero or Domitian. What it means is that Nero and Domitian encapsulate all the wickedness that that was common among the roman imperial system right they were sort of like what some scholars call like archetypes or sort of like uh what the empire would look like if it was a person you know and they represented all the evil and excess and so the beast is nero but it's domitian but it's really every all of the above it's the roman imperial system itself and so what i try to say is like look we have data from the ancient world that's identifying nero as a beast that should play a part in how we identify uh, the beast, perhaps in Revelation. I think um, the the second thing I would say too, and well, there are several other reasons, but one other reason is that um, we know from historical sources that Nero was often um, mocked and made fun of by his own people. So, kind of like the graffiti on the wall, people would make fun of him, and and they would. Um, that, well, there, since Nero killed his mother, they would make fun of that. So there was an, a, a saying that was kind of graffitied on, uh, I guess, ancient walls or something. And uh, anyway, it goes like this. Um, how, how does it go? I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, oh, how did it, oh I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, anyway, basically, it's saying that the, the, fra- the phrase murdered his own mother rhymes with his own name, like Nero, right? Um, uh, I, I can't believe I'm going blank on this. I could normally just repeat this. Anyway, here's the thing. Um, Nero's name was often toyed with as um, in a mockery sort of way, but the way they would do it is they would perform a sort of an ancient practice called gematria or gematria. And what that was is you would, you could take a person's name and essentially digitize it. Okay. Because in the ancient world, they didn't have, um, uh, what do you call it? They, they didn't have a different script for numbers than they did for alphabet. So like in English, we have an alphabet that's just letters, but we also have script for just numbers, one, two, three. Um, we use the Latin system for our alphabet, but an Arabic system for numbers. Well, Greeks didn't do that. The, the, the first letter of the alphabet, alpha, was also number one, right? Beta was the, the number two and so forth. So you could take a name like Nero, Neron, Kaisar. You could take that name and each letter would have a numerical value. And this is what they would do to Nero's name in the ancient world. So they would say, um, you know, the, Nero's name is the same as murdered his own mother. So the phrase murdered his own mother, if you digitize that, came out to Nero's name or something like that. And so they would toy with his... They would, you see what I'm saying? And I would, oh, yeah. I the, where is my little book? I've got Suetonius hanging around here somewhere. 
Um, yeah, just go. People just need to go Google this. Google or read Suetonius's biography on Nero. He, he talks about it plain as day. And um, uh, yeah, so let's see if I can find this because it's just too good. I've been re- referring to it um, a little bit here. Oh, here it is. Okay. Yeah, I'll read it. Okay, here it is. Count the numerical values of the letters in Nero's name, and in Murdered His Own Mother, you will find their sum is the same. So that's the idea. It's kind oh, of it, it rhymes, yeah. It kind of rhy- well, it's made to rhyme in English too, yeah. Count the numerical values of the letters in Nero's name, and in Murdered His Own Mother, mother you will find their sum is the same. This comes from Suetonius's biography on Nero. So if you take the phrase murdered his own mother and you take the phrase, the, the, the name of Nero, and there were many, you know, as an emperor, he had long names, little names, you know, just kind of like a royalty does today. You know, depending on yeah. the name you use will depend on how long the name is and what number it is. Anyway, long story short, we know in the ancient world that Nero's name was being toyed with and played with and digitized, right? Uh, it was a practice called gematria. And I and, see where this is going. Yes, because in Revelation, you have uh, a number 666 for the beast. It's the beast. It's the number of his name. And um, now, again, if you took your name or my, my, take my name, Matt, if you digitize that, then you would get an, a certain number. If you said Matthew, you get a different number because you have more letters or Matthew Halstead. That's more numbers. So but anyway, if you take Nero's name, Neron Kaisar in Greek and transliterate that into Hebrew, then it comes out, it can come out to 666. Now here's what's funny. Here's what's interesting. There, like I said, there's different ways to spell his name, but if you use a different alternative spelling for Nero's name, instead of saying Neron Kaiser, you just said Nero Kaiser. So you leave off one letter, you get another number and that number is 616. Now, why is that important? It's important because in some manuscripts of the New Testament of Revelation, the number is not 666. It's 616. No way. So what's interesting there is, as Craig Keener in his one of his bio, uh, in his commentary on Revelation, he says it's almost as if the scribe knew who it was referencing, and he put 616 instead of 666. Maybe he didn't. He was using alternate spelling. So my point is, you have that data. That's almost like a an open and shut case. Well, here's what I will say. You have that data, plus the other data I mentioned earlier about how in the ancient world we have references of Nero as a beast, right? And it's the same word, Therion. Um, you also have a Latin inscription too, uh, so that, but it's still the same concept, same idea. So you have those two things, plus you have Rome as a city on seven hills, mountains, and all that jazz we talked about. You put all these things together... The beast sure sure sounds like Nero or somebody like Nero, mm-hmm. uh, Domitian. What I would say is I don't think it's a slam dunk, but I think it's a good layup. Okay, right. You know, I I think that there's always room. That maybe we're wrong, but I I think that in John's mind, the beast is Rome, the Roman Empire, the imperial system, of which Nero was the epitome of, right, and and that. I kind of I get my view here from a a scholar named David Da Silva who's done a lot of work on this through the years and and he he I can't remember the exact phrasing he uses but yeah he basically says look the archetype of Roman imperial wickedness was Nero and so it would make sense why John even if he's writing after Nero would use this language because 
even Domitian at the time would have was you know kind of considered a second Nero. Um, so my view is, and it kind of goes back to your initial question, is revelation about the future or is it about the first century? And what I'm going to say is this. I think before we can entertain questions about the future and how does it apply today, we need to situate it in the first century. And I think that's where it's safest. And so I think it's mainly the first century. Now, once we've done that, we can come back with a fresh set of eyes and say, okay, how can we apply this to the 21st century? Um, and what I would say is this, I think if, I think what Revelation does is offer a critique of wayward, wicked, evil, uh, political empire. I think it's a critique of empire, domination of the marginalized, domination of you know, the less thans. And because you, you read Revelation 18 and Rev, uh, Rome is critiqued for its economic harshness of the nations around it. And it's critiqued for its sexual immorality. I mean, it just, it, it's a critique of the whole thing, dude. And Making so, me nervous. <laughs> well, no, well, here's no, the for... thing. Here's the thing. I think the, the beautiful picture about Revelation, the beautiful thing about Revelation is that it's so symbolic that it can be applied to any era. It can be applied to Rome. It could be applied to that was what I was Empire today. Go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, because this was the thought I had while I was while you've been talking is so just just as uh, one way I, I don't think this is an original thought, but like looking at the Jewish people and their struggle uh, forty years in the desert, that uh, is very symbolic of a human being, you know, God saving them. And then immediately them, me being like, Oh, I forgot what you just did for me. I'm going to go worship this thing. And then, so revelation, it sounds like this story, every, you know, if, an if, if, if in every person's story, that is their age from birth to death, since really, you know, the only age we can experience is, is our own, our own experience. Um, then that story does fit every single one. I mean, Pol Pot, Hitler, you know, every, at, during every age, there is a horrendous empire. There is a horrendous beast. There is a spirit of antichrist and there is destruction. So yeah, that I, I, I see. So is, is this one of those things? And I guess this is where, the Bible is such a text because it's like, is, yeah. is, is this, is that how we're supposed to read these things? Or is there even a, is supposed to the wrong, the wrong uh, thought? Like it, it almost seems like a, a layman cannot just pick up the Bible and like read it correctly because there's so I mean, because, I mean, a, a perfect example is that a straight reading of Revelation has led to uh, repent. We're all, the apocalypse is coming. We're going to get raptured. You know, this this whole, I mean, an entire multi-million dollar book series of basically <laughs> not truth. So, yeah, it's conf it almost makes me wonder. It's like, okay, okay, John, if, why didn't you just straight up... <laughs> Be like, hey, uh, I'm talking about Nero here and talking about Rome here. Why did why even use this 
yeah language in the first place unless it's in god's yeah. wisdom so that jed in 2023 could be like oh this applies currently i think that's the i think that's the magic of oh magic i don't know if that's that's probably not the right uh, word. yeah it feels it, like appropriate it, word yeah it i think it's well i will say this it's the imaginative beauty of revelation is that if he just said hey i'm really mad at nero nero's doing bad things rome's doing bad things Domitian's doing bad things let's talk bad about him for a while we would be tempted to look at that as just a historical text oh that was john's struggle in the day but i think the wisdom and the imaginative character of revelation is such that it's so symbolic that it can be applied in any era for john the beast was rome but the question is today are we being beastly are we, do we have the beast in us? Are we, you know, if we are fighting the beast, how do we find comfort from that? Well, the, that's the other beautiful thing about Revelation is that the whole story is set up as a war between a monster, the dragon, the beast, that whole complex, and a slain lamb, right? The the lamb uh, is 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 the hero of the Revelation story. And if you if you put the two side by side, a monstrous seven-headed beast, and then you right next to it put a slain lamb, which symbolizes Jesus. You would think, my goodness, this is not a match. The monster is going to win. But that's the beauty of the stories. No, no, no. The lamb wins. The lamb conquers the beast. And I think this gives us hope in uh, in in the first century and the twenty first century is that those who are persecuted, those who are pulverized by the beast, that we can find solace and comfort in in our lamb-like character because we ultimately belong to the lamb himself. That's where our, our hope is, is in the lamb. And I think that it just shows what you could call a cruciform ethic, a cruciform theology that God beats the powers of the world, not by just, you know, beating them up, but by being a lamb and by dying on behalf of us. And that's how he conquers the world. It's interesting because the final battle of Revelation is non-existent. There's no. I was battle. just like, about Jesus, to say Jesus that. Just shows Do you up know and starts... how disappointed I was <laughs> as yeah, a is... kid. Oh, it, right, it, right. It's the ultimate setup where it's like, all right, yeah. the kings of the world have assembled their armies, and then Jesus, it's just like, well, hey guys, boom. over. You know, yeah, it's boom. over. He just starts Done. speaking. Is the sword out of his mouth symbolizes the power of his word, and because I think this is controversial, but I'm going to go and say it. The way God wages war in the world is through nonviolence. He he is his way is is a is he reigns through the cross, not through the sword. Caesar wages war through the sword. Christians wage war through the cross. So my love for my neighbor, God's love for all of us, overcomes the evil in the world. Um, that doesn't we might end up being beat up in the process, but our love, our willingness to sacrifice ourselves for our neighbor, can actually conquer. The, the neighbor in a sense not the neighbor but the, the sin that maybe the neighbor is committed to um so yeah so you have all of this masked in symbol because i think that's the beauty of it is that it needs to be applied in every era that truth does I, i'll say one more quick thing um you mentioned kind of a straight reading of, of of revelation leads us astray and and man is there you know if i don't know all the greco-roman stuff all the nero stuff how am i going to understand it and I, I think people might be tempted to you know, kind of despairs like, well, I never want to read this. You know, what point is, you know, what I would say is actually, no, no, no. I think a book, I think the series of the, the left behind series, they didn't read it straight. 
they didn't read it literally. Okay. What they did was impose upon the revelation text, modern assumptions. They imposed upon the revelation text, modern geopolitical questions. Did you notice mm. in the left behind series, how all the enemies of God are enemies of the United States? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the, the assumption okay. is that American the wrote guys. this book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we're the good right, guys. And, right. I or, at, or I think if I remember right, left behind really didn't have America as a good guy, but we weren't wicked. Like we were no, just sort of, of like culturally, you know, just kind of benign. Yes. The Russians, the Chinese or whatever, you know. Yeah. Eastern Bloc the... Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Cold War mentality. I'll tell <laughs> you this. The Antichrist yeah. was not a white dude. <laughs> you you know i think i think he was uh he was like multicultural right uh i think uh he was european uh yes. some, like the economic union it's been a while since i've yeah, you know, yeah. dabbled in, in that story but i'll have to ask kurt cameron yeah yeah that's right um yeah that would be an interesting conversation um i you know it's funny because i think what left behind has given us is not revelation it has given us an americanization of a, a revelation and and that betrays the the whole point of revelation itself revelation is a book for every generation for every uh every church every type of person it's for the marginalized it's you know it's a word of encouragement to the marginalized it's a word of admonition and correction to the beasts of the world and um and so i think i think there's a there's a multicultural dimension to revelation that you know to be honest with you I'm not sure Americans who live in relatively comfortable lives, like you and me, you know, we live pretty comfortably, but I don't know. Can we really understand revelation because it was written to a people who were being persecuted um, or at least more, had more fear of persecution than we do. I say, I think revelation is best understood by those in the majority world who are currently being persecuted and who don't have three meals a day, who, because of economic exploitation, they are marginalized or whatever, you know, for them, I think they're going to be able to get, they have the right lens, if you will. And, yeah. and um, so I think we need to, well, you know, many people have said this, but oftentimes Americans read revelation um, as if uh, they are, you know, the innocent ones actually, we need to understand and we should at least pose the question is, are we living in Babylon? Are we living in Rome? That's why I was saying I'm getting we nervous particip- because it's like, I'm yeah, that's us right now. Like, are we participating? Yeah. I mean, what are we participating in the ways of the beast? Yeah. Economically. And I, I, I don't have any good answers for any of these questions, but I want to ask the questions because they've not been answered. They've not been asked. And, um, and so I, th- I think I put this in my book. I can't remember how I phrased it, but something like, Revelation helps us to navigate uh, our Christianity in a in a in a world of Rome, you know, and mm. in, a, in a in a world filled with the images of Caesar that that demands our worship, you know. And how do we navigate that life? And Revelation, I think, helps us stay pure in that sense as best we can. And um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, there's a lot yeah. Of no, I know, I know. There's so much we could go. So, in, in kind of wrapping it up. Uh, I want to ask one more, one more line of questioning and then mm-hmm. definitely tell everybody where sure. they can get the book. Um, okay, I'll yeah. be, I'll be getting one for sure. Um, and this is obviously opinion. Uh, so why do you think Western evangelical Christians are so obsessed with the idea that they are living in the end times? It's because it it is 
you can tell there is an undercurrent of they want this to be true. I will admit I wanted it to be true at a point in my Christian life. And I can say for me, it was because I had bought into the flavor of Christianity that said this world is only to be bared. You know, I'm just passing through. Right. Yeah. So I hate it. This world is nasty. I'm just ready to be done with it. So come on, Jesus, let's come home. Um, that is where mine came from. Um, and so I, I, I wonder is that everyone else's, but it, it, it does seem to be that there is a, almost a, a wishful thinking beneath this obsession with currently living in the end times. I think there are multiple answers to that too. Um, one thing I would say is just to piggyback on what you said for starters is that, yeah, we have a wrong view of reality. We think that the goal in our Christian life is to just endure right now so that at the end of our life, we can escape the body and go to heaven when we die. And, you know, this is this is something that the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has talked about a lot, namely that we have Western Christianity has had this idea that the body is bad and we need to escape it, you know, and but really that's that's Greek pagan thought. That's not Greek Christian thinking. The Christian hope is not that we would go to heaven when we die, but but rather that one day the earth would be renewed and heaven would come to the earth and we would have resurrected bodies. So we're not flying on a cloud like Casper the ghost for those who remember that back in the 80s and 90s or whatever. Um, no, we are embodied creatures and God will give us a new body, a restored body, and he'll make all things new. And But because we don't have that idea, because we don't have a resurrection mentality, we jump into a rapture mentality mm. where the hope is escape. The hope is being whisked off to heaven and leaving this world behind, right? And, and you know, there's a funny story. I put this in my book. I Honestly, I really couldn't believe it, but I, I went to the website. I was like, is this, a, is this legit? But apparently there's a whole website that that basically says you know for christians who are who will be raptured if you're worried about your pet your pet like your pet dog or your cat you can enter them into a database and we have um we have formed like a group of people who in the event of rapture you know they're not christians and so they don't believe in rapture or whatever but they'll take care of your animals no way <laughs> it's i forgot what the website's called i i cited in my book it's so that's it's so silly. awesome <laughs> yeah it's but what was funny about that is how weird our mentality is that's an extreme example but it captures the point is that christians we we have we rely on non-christians to take care of the world for us because we're leaving this joint you know yeah it, it was kind of yeah kind of humorous in that respect and i thought man this is so crazy but um so, so yeah, we have that escapist mentality because we have a wrong view of um, eschatology and we get into these weird views about rapture and things. Um, the second thing I would say is the reason we buy into the left behind view is, well, we have to ask, what is the left behind view? The left behind view is that we are raptured, taken out, then the tribulation happens. Okay. Mm. Well, that sounds like a very American thing to do, right? you know, get out before it gets bad. And (laughs) because we live in such comfortable lives, and I, I mean, I'm ashamed. I mean, in many respects, it was like, I live in a a very comfortable life and I I really have to watch that. I really have to, that's just something every American Christian needs to be thinking about. Like, how do we not live excessively? Yeah. How do we, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we cap it off and say enough is enough and 
give away the rest of you know what, what we don't need or whatever. But anyway, long that's another issue. But <laughs> because we live in this idea, um, we can't imagine a world that's in tribulation. That has that has to be something in the future. That has to be something that doesn't happen to us. So let's form an eschatology that doesn't have that in, as part of the equation. Because people in Africa, people in Asia, people who are impoverished, people who are being beat up and whatever for their faith, they don't have the luxury to say that the tribulation is future because they are living in it. And this is, they they know the words of Jesus better than we do. They know when Jesus says in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be a picture of overcome the world. Because the, the tribulation is a promise for all of us. It's it's a It's an ongoing thing through history. It's not just a thing at the end of history. And, and so uh, these people in other parts of the country who are being killed for their faith, they don't have the luxury of, of a peaceful eschatology that whisks them away. And so I think it's Man. largely just because we're in an, in an economic situation where it's easy. We're in a peaceful situation where we're not threatened if we go to church, um, that it just become part of our psyche and part of our assumptions that we just can't imagine a tribulation now. Tribulation has to be future. Wow. And, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. Let me, let, yeah. Let me yeah. Yeah. Back that here. Every time this, this is, you notice when something weird happens in America, whether it's a tsunami, an earthquake, political upheaval or whatever, you have end of end time conspiracy theorists or you have end time uh, rumors flying. Oh, this is the end. Right. Yep. I'm like, no, this is just like, this is what normal people go through, you know, in the yeah. world, you know, we're, we're just so coddled. And I think that impacts our eschatology. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well said. It's I, yeah, just having that thought of realizing it's like, wow, like I have never and, and God willing, most likely will not experience uh, growing up and living in a country uh, like Ukraine. I won't experience uh, a missile dropping on the mall while I'm there. Probably not. God willing. You know, that's that's a privilege. That's a wild privilege that that completely. I mean. Oh, it is the human condition. If only I could keep these uh, awarenesses throughout my day when I'm mad about traffic. It's like, yeah. so, <laughs> it's so silly. But man. Or when the hot water tank goes out. And you have oh, yeah. Oh, my you know, God. Things like that. It's. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's just into the world into you know, the it world. Was, it was really interesting because there was a few months ago where uh our our hot water tank did go out. That's why that that example was so readily on my mind. And then we had both of our cars break down. Then we I mean, we hit this kind of like weird season of like, man, we're like spending way so a ton of money just repairing things, you know. And but it was a huge inconvenience and you know, it, it's like, man, this is really really bad and you have to stop and things like no, 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 you know, no way, Matt, the, you know, this is, this is a first world problems and, you know, quit it, you know, that, and, and that's what I mean is that it impacts all of us. And that's why I think Christians, this gets us on another topic, but I I think it's, well, I think I it's part of it is that I think that like, as Christians, we need to reassess the way we think about money. We need to reassess the way we think about wealth. We need to reassess all those things. I'm not saying we should adopt a poverty gospel because if that gets us closer to God, I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that, you know, at some point we have to say, you know, how much is enough? And then, and then whatever I don't need for my family, you know, how do I be a blessing to other people and help other people? And, 
You know, we, we need, at the very least, I just encourage Christians, we need to be thinking about it. Churches need to be thinking about those questions. You know, every dime that we spend at our churches, are we going, are we spending it to make our, our worship more comfortable or are we spending it to actually help people who need the help? You know, I don't know. These are just huge questions. Yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's at the Amen. center of Revelation, I think, in many ways. But yeah, yeah. awesome uh, conversation as usual. We'll, we'll definitely have to do a round three uh, because there's yeah. so many more things. Uh, so let's do pl- it. Plug the book. Plug the book. Where can people yeah. find it? Yeah, thanks, dude. Uh, it's called uh, The End of the World as You Know It. And you can you can find it on Amazon. It's for pre-order. It won't be released until February. So we've got several months out. But you can pre-order it. And here's the cool thing. You can pre-order it on Amazon. However, if you go to Lexham Press, L-E-X-H-A-M, LexhamPress.com, or just Google it, um, uh, you can get the book for, uh, I think, 32% off. So for like 16 bucks. Normally, it's like 25 but you can get it for about 16 bucks if you pre-order it through Lexham. Nice. But yeah, I appreciate it. And if folks read it, you know, rate it on Amazon, share it with your friends. And I'm always eager to chat. So you can send me an email if you like it or if you hate the book. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks again. Um, send me an email, churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com, uh, patreon.com slash churchandotherdrugs, and storefrontiers.com slash churchandotherdrugs. There was a sense of disappointment as we left the morgue.